Well, today we are going to talk about David and Goliath, which is one of the most famous stories in the world. Even those who have no church background, who know very little about the Bible, are probably familiar with the broad outlines of the story of the shepherd boy David uh, killing, uh, against all odds, killing the giant Goliath. Allusions to this story abound in contemporary life. Uh, So often this story of David and Goliath is cited in the sports world, right? Uh, Was it the 1980 Olympics when the United States hockey team beat the Soviet team? Uh, You know, it was just the most incredible, probably the most incredible victory ever. A true David and Goliath story. Uh, You know, imagine the uh, 0-16 Cleveland Browns beating Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. Can you imagine that? Dick, where are you? You can't imagine that. No, no, that may never happen. But boy, that would be a David and Goliath story, wouldn't it? So superficially, the story is about underdogs who triumph against a vastly superior opponent. But in actual fact, the story is not primarily about underdogs at all, but it's about God and what God can do if people will only trust in Him. The story, which we find in 1 Samuel chapter 17, takes us to the Valley of Elah, where the Israelite army were lined up against the Philistine army. Uh, there was, they were on the, both armies were on the heights, and there was a valley in between them. They were ready to do battle, and into this tense situation came a man by the name of Goliath, who was an impressive sight indeed. Uh, scripture would indicate that uh, he was probably eight to nine feet tall in his stocking feet. He was covered head to toe with armor. His armor weighed about 150 pounds. The head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. Not only that, the written account says that he had the shield carrier who walked before him, and the Hebrew word here for shield refers to the largest shield used in battle, the size of a full-grown man. So it was designed to deflect all incoming arrows. So imagine, imagine seeing all this coming at you, coming your way. I mean, think of something like a Sherman tank. Clearly, uh, this was a man who could not be beaten. Goliath, the Philistine, was thoroughly intimidating, an intimidating presence, and he played it up for all it was worth. Confident in the superiority of his equipment and confident of his natural strength, he is so certain of winning the fight that he commits his fellow countrymen to slavery if he should fail. I don't know if he uh, consulted with his fellow soldiers in the Philistines, but, uh, but there was no way he was going to lose. So Goliath, the mighty warrior, stood before the Israelite arm, army and issued a bold challenge. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the soldiers of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. 
If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Uh, this is kind of a, occasionally in the ancient world, you know, each army would select a champion and then the champion would, uh, would determine the outcome. Uh, fairly rare. Uh, but maybe it was the, uh, the, uh, the Philistines brought that tradition with them, I don't know. But on hearing the Philistines' words, King Saul and all the Israelites were, as Scripture says, dismayed and terrified. Morning and evening, for some 40 days, Goliath would step out from the Philistine lines and flaunt his size and his prowess, and he would pour scorn upon the Israelites. And Saul and his soldiers cowered in fear. They searched their ranks high and low and found no one who would take the giant on. Now, the logical person to take on Goliath would have been King Saul, the champion of the people. And Scripture says that uh, he was very tall. He was a head taller than anybody else. He had a very intimidating physical presence himself. But Saul shrank before Goliath and proved to be a coward. Now, Saul offered all kinds of rewards for the person who could kill him, freedom from taxes, freedom from having to ever serve the king, and he offered his own daughter in marriage, but he himself was not about to try. And so the spirit of utter helplessness and despair fell upon the Israelite camp. Enter David, who had been tending his father's sheep and who had come to the encampment uh, on an errand, uh, he was sent to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, to the front by, by his father. He had brought food rations for his three older brothers who were serving in Saul's army. And David arrived just as Goliath was issuing yet another challenge to Israel. And David couldn't believe his eyes. He watched with dismay as the whole Israelite army was seized with terror. And as David began to inquire about the situation, his older brother poured scorn on him, saying what older brothers often do, what are you doing here, squirt? Why aren't you tending dad's sheep? What, do you, what business do you have being here? You just want to gawk at the battle, don't you? Come on, go back to Dad, would you? We don't need you. To which David replied, as younger brothers often do, What's it to you? Can't I even ask a question? I mean, isn't this a free country? Okay, I'm elaborating a little bit on the story, but... Uh... That brings me back to my childhood with my two brothers. I thought, what's it to you? Free country. <laughs> and then David, ignoring his brothers, said to King Saul, hey, I'm your man. I will fight Goliath, for who is he to defy the army of the living God? And so we pick up the, uh, the Scripture 
in 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning at verse 32. And really the whole chapter is uh, it's just a, it's, it's a, great, a great read, the way that the story is put together. David said to Saul, to King Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are, you are only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. And then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. That's <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a touch of humor in this story. You know, here's, here's poor David, you know, and he's got these outsides. You know, remember how tall Saul was? He's putting on the Saul's armor. He said, this is just ain't going to work. I mean, this is ridiculous. So he took him off. Then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and to the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel." All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. 
So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. We love it when the underdog wins. And to be honest, David actually was not completely defenseless. Okay, he didn't have the armor, he didn't have the shield, you know, and all that. But he was pretty darn good with a sling, having practiced a lot hurling rocks to keep wild animals away from the sheep. Slings actually were a pretty effective weapon. A manual missile launcher, it was used by lightly armed troops from India and Persia to Greece and Rome and they could be as effective as archers in battle situations. There's a stone frieze, I, th I think it's in the British Museum or something, of the, the Assyrian army, and uh, the archers are pictured, uh, but following the archers are slingers. Uh, and uh, they were very effective in battle. In fact, uh, recently, National Geographic uh, was sponsoring, or at least reported on it in an excavation on uh, Hadrian's Wall, which is in northern Scotland. The Romans had come all the way up, you know, up into northern Scotland. And along Hadrian's Wall, they've discovered all these little missiles, these rock missiles, so that uh, slings were used to keep the, the barbarians away. Um, so they were actually were pretty effective. Experiments conducted in Germany have shown that a round rock hurled by a trained slinger at close range has only slightly less stopping power than a 44 Magnum cartridge fired from a handgun. Other tests revealed that a trained slinger could hit a target smaller than a human being from 130 yards away. But still, having said that, but still, the odds seemed greatly against David since he only had five stones and he had to hit Goliath just in the right spot. Yeah, and I guess in the shields or the, the uh, helmets of those days, uh, there was uh, an opening here. And of course, as you know, David slung that rock and it went right, right there between his eyes. But it wasn't David's weapon or his skill that enabled him to triumph in the end, but it was David's God. The hero of the story is not David. This is very important. The hero of the story is not David. Victory was assured because David dared to trust in Almighty God, who is bigger than any human Goliath. God, not David, is the center of the story. God is the hero. You know, so oftentimes when, sometimes preachers are guilty of this, of moralism, and they'll say, you, you need to be like David when you face a glass, you know, you need to be, don't be afraid, you know. But it's, 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 it's about God, it's not about David. It's about trusting in God. God's at the center. So, what does this story mean for you and me? Well, the meaning lies in the contrast between King Saul's approach to life's fearful problems and David's approach. King Saul could only see the intimidating giant before him. Goliath filled his thoughts. 
Goliath kept him up at night. He cowered in fear and in hopelessness, and it paralyzed him. David, on the other hand, focused on the Lord God Almighty from the very beginning. This is the army of the living God. Come on, you guys. God, not Goliath, filled David's mind, and he could therefore respond with faith, with courage, trust, and take action. David's secret was that he had acquired, as Eugene Peterson put it, a God-dominated imagination. Out wandering those Bethlehem hills and meadows, tending his father's sheep, David was immersed in the largeness, the awesomeness, the greatness of God. He practiced the Lord's presence in meditation and prayer and song. We can imagine him looking up into the vast sky, reciting the words of Psalm 8. Can you imagine those days looking up at the sky and having absolutely no city lights at all? I mean, we, we rarely, you know, unless we go way out, we rarely see that. But we can think of David, you know, out there on the hills, looking up in the sky, reciting the words of Psalm 8, a psalm of his own composition. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. God was very real to David out there in the hills. And he experienced God's immediate and strengthening presence in his fights with lions and bears protecting the sheep. And as Eugene Peterson puts it in his, in his book on David, David had practiced the presence of God so thoroughly that God's Word, which he couldn't hear audibly, was far more real to him than the lion's roar, which he could hear. He had worshipped the majesty of God so continuously that God's love, which he couldn't see, was far more real to him than the bear's ferocity, which he could see. His praying and singing, his meditation and adoration had shaped an imagination in him that set each sheep and lamb, bear, and lion into something large and vast and robust. God. For David, God so dominated his imagination. God was so big and so utterly real that he couldn't believe what he was seeing and hearing when he walked into the valley of Elah and beheld the army of the living God cowering with fear. Everyone there had Goliath sickness, Goliath phobia. They could only see the giant, the evil and the insurmountable obstacle, the fearful problem. Saul and his whole army were totally incapacitated. Saul had only his own meager resources to rely upon, and he knew that wasn't enough. But he had forgotten God altogether. So can you see what the biblical story is saying to you and to me here? 
Goliath comes into our lives in a variety of forms, right? Maybe a particular person whom we're having a real problem with. It may be a sickness that just, you know, just settles in. It seems intractable. We don't know what to do with it. Maybe some complex situation keeping us up at night and making us sick with worry. Might be some terrible financial pressure that's got us down. Whatever it may be, it looms so large in our mind, and it seems so big to solve. Our own resources to cope are too few and too limited. So intimidated, we shrink with fear, right? We become paralyzed. Oh, doom, hopelessness. So intimidated, we shrink in fear like King Saul. Yeah, we may even become incapacitated, powerless to act. Unfortunately, we have lost our awareness of Almighty God. See, so it's here that you and I can learn something from David. We can allow him to remind us that God is bigger than any problem or obstacle we may face. We, like David, can begin to acquire a God-dominated imagination through prayer and meditation, worship and study, so that we think of nothing but the awesomeness, the greatness, the majesty of God, the reality of God, and God's ability to save. I mean, isn't that what we're doing when we gather here, among other things? Yes, we, we worship God, we allow God to speak, but for us, we are building a God-dominated imagination. That's why Bible study is so important. That's why I'm glad to see some small groups springing up, you know, grappling with the Word. It strengthens our spiritual muscles, right? And we've, but not just our muscles, but we become more and more aware of God's ability to see us through even the most difficult times. Are you and I not in the hands of the living God? And does not the battle belong to the Lord? So that with David we can say, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's God, not Goliath, who shall have the last word. I mean, if God is for us, who is against us? God actually has won the most important battle through Christ, right? Who defeated evil, the devil, once and for all at the cross. And now nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who has won the battle? Well, God has through Christ. Amen. Amen. How big is your God? Bigger than any Goliath life may send your way bigger than any problem you and I may face. So, we must let the profound truth sink in. Let us immerse ourselves in ultimate reality. God is alive and powerful, awesome in majesty, able to save. 
trust in God. He's never failed us yet. He will never fail us. The battle belongs to the Lord.